And I heard a clap, and that will work well on a golf tournament, but let's give the Lord a clap for what, what just took place. One of my missions is to eradicate golf clapping in church. God is worthy of it all. So good to be together, and, and this is special for me. Ian uh, and I teamed up at PCC for the last two and a half years. He's a gifted brother, uh, great family, and thank you for bringing your gifts to us, bro. I love you. I love you so much. Hey, uh, grab your Bible if you've got it. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 16, and I produced a field guide for our time. If you don't have it, we've got people out here that would love to get this to you. This may help you. Uh, as we meander through three of the 300 questions that Jesus asked, three of the 300 that he asked. So I told you I grew up, uh, born in the city at three months. My parents uh, moved to Novato, California, 30 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, for 18 years of my life, grew up there, very religious, but not a follower of Christ. Uh, and then went away to college, went to the Harvard of the West, Sacramento State University. And um, uh, one of the most important questions ever asked of me, because I believe life really is found in questions, um, was this question at nine years old, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, my brother, who was nine years older than me at the time, still, well, he died at 40, but he was still, you know, nine years older than me. Uh, he came home as a senior in high school and announced to his family, I'm born again. And my parents didn't have a category for this. And so uh, they said to him, do not tell your siblings about this. And I was in his room that night as a nine-year-old. God had been working in my heart, even at a young age. And I said, what do you mean, born again? I'm religious. And he said, mm-mm. And we were talking about this. And he handed me a New Testament. And he said, I dare you to read a chapter in this every night. And then you can see who Jesus is for yourself. What do you think? Do you want to take the challenge? Uh, that challenge stuck with me through my uh, childhood years, my adolescent years, even into college. I did, not pre- I did not pretend to be a follower of Christ, but my righteousness, if I were to die, I would stand before God and say, I read a chapter a night in the New Testament. And I uh, went to college, joined a fraternity, and, and really was seeking for something to fill a void in me. And also, on a promise to that same brother, went to a real Christian group meeting. Uh, it was Campus Crusade for Christ, they're called Crew now. And so my first two months of college were fraternity and crew, uh, and the two didn't mix, uh, so I thought. And uh, it was on a Halloween night at a fraternity party, that nine years of Bible reading, seeing it lived out in people like you, the gospel lived out in real, living, breathing followers of Christ like you, the aroma of Christ, and going, this is way more life-giving than my fraternity brothers. That Halloween night at that party, I don't fully understand or can fully explain it, but it all, conviction came over me and fear came over me. I saw the, the hedonism, debauchery going on at this party. I looked at my own life and the moral slide I'd been on, and I was scared at that point But what it would mean to follow Christ. I was more scared of where my sin was taking me. And uh, I didn't find Jesus, he found me and I gave my life to Christ. Um, And so those four years were magical in college for a whole nother reason, we'll talk about it this weekend. But um, 
The second most important question asked of me took place when I returned to Marin County, and now I'm a youth pastor. And um, I thought uh, I you know, was gonna be single for my life. I just thought I'm all in for the Lord. I was a young zealot at 24 years old. And um, I had a group of men over my life who I called my board of directors. These were men who took an interest in me. We all need three important relationships in our life. We need pacers, people above us that will pour into us. We need racers, peers, that we're running the race together. We need tracers, people that can look into our life and we pour into. And these were my pacers. And we're walking the Marin headlands. This is the mountains that overlook the Golden Gate Bridge on the Marin side. And uh, this was gonna be the question of questions because for about six months, I've been working at this church and I have grown to love a woman named Ann Griffith. Uh, but I didn't know if it was a love you build a marriage on. And uh, I didn't know if I was the marriage type. And so these men, we walked up the Marin Headlands, we sat down like we always would, and they would pour into my life and ask me questions about my life. And I said to them, hey, um, you guys know Ann. They knew Ann, we'd done stuff together. And I said, um, I'm wondering uh, if I should marry her. And this was the second most important question next to that first one at nine that was ever asked of me. To a man, they said, what are you waiting for? <laughs> In essence, they said, Jeej, you are way out of your league with her. She is so far beyond, like, it's as good as it's going to get. Do not pass this by. Marry that woman. And two months later, uh, Ann and I were on a date, and I pulled out a ring, and I said, will you marry me? And you know what her response was? What have you been waiting for? <laughs> Someone wisely told me that all of life comes down to three questions. You make or break your life around these three questions. Who will be your master? What will be your mission? Who will be your mate? God calls you to have a mate. Uh, what, what grand, glorious God will you give your life to? Um, what will be the mission, not your profession, but the mission you give your life to? And who will you choose to come alongside to partner with you and give your life, that, your life in that grand mission? What if life is found not in the answers, but in the questions. You have in your field guide the stats, and I told you already, Jesus was asked a lot of questions when he walked the earth. 180 times recorded in the Gospels. He only answered three of them. Jesus gave a lot of truth, but he only responded three times to questions asked of him. We also see he asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. And he didn't ask questions the way we ask questions. We ask questions for information. Jesus asked questions for transformation. Uh, we ask questions because uh, we just, uh, we wanna know um, what is the answer? Jesus asked questions because he wants to know, uh, do you wanna be transformed? We ask questions for answers. He asks questions for awareness. By the way, Jesus isn't the only one that knows the value of questions. The first recorded words 
in the Bible of Satan was a question. Did God really say? He's still asking it today. In essence, he asked Jesus that question too in the garden. Did God really say you're a son? If you're a son, why are you hungry? It's how he tempts us. The first question or the first response of God after the sin was a question. Where are you? To Adam and Eve. Not because he didn't know the answer. They didn't know the answer. They didn't know what sin had done to them. They didn't know that covering up was not the path to human flourishing, that isolating from God would actually turn out better for them. They had no idea the dehumanizing effect of sin on their life. So God asks questions. We're going to look at three of them. And this question is the question of questions that we're going to look at today. The, the question above all questions, and interestingly, he asks it of his own followers. He never asked this question of the masses. He only asked it of his followers, because it's really important as followers we get this question right, because for so many of us, myself included, especially in the Bay Area, um, our answer to this question has a ripple effect for our neighbors and for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Really important. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. You ready? That was not a rhetorical question, by the way. Are you ready? Yeah, amen. <laughs> Father, I thank you so much for this time, and I thank you for this morning. And we pause and pray just to stop and to remind ourselves of who you are and what's taking place. This is a living word of God. You're still alive, and I pray, Jesus, you would emerge from the pages of Scripture so we could see you as if we were with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi. We were sitting down in that environment hearing you ask that question because in many ways, the Bay Area is like Caesarea Philippi. And in many ways, this question is so important for us. I pray it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that for all of us, you would bring brand new conviction so that our life is transformed. I need that. We need that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I wonder what questions have most impacted your life. I wonder, I told you two of them for me, but I wonder what that is for you. I've got another question as we jump into the text. It's a riddle, really. Why would Jesus take his followers on a retreat to Las Vegas? Why would he take them away to ask the most important question possibly of his ministry? Let's jump in. Matthew 16, hold that question. We'll answer it by the end of our time together. Matthew 16, verse 13. Here we go. You ready? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew puts a, a stamp on this, a geographical locator, if you will, to make a point. Uh, and some of us don't know, many of us don't know about this, so let me just tell you the details of this. Caesarea Philippi, most of Jesus' ministry took place about 100 miles north of Jerusalem in a place called the Galilee, around the lake and sea of Galilee. Uh, and Jerusalem was south of there. And Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is going to go north 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of a mountain. You may have heard of it before, Mount Hermon. 
and so he intentionally goes north instead of south to Jerusalem. After this question, he will literally go on a death march, 125 miles to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to his death. They don't know. His followers have no idea he's going to his death. So he takes them on a retreat to unfold for the first time news of his death. I'm going to a cross. And he uses a word for the first time it appears in scripture uh, that we're familiar with, the word church. He unveils his plan for the called out community, the ecclesia, the church, and he intentionally goes to the Las Vegas of the day to do this. Interesting. Uh, We know everything Jesus did was intentional, so why would he go to Caesarea Philippi? Let me tell you a little bit about the region, the city at the foot of Mount Hermon, but up to a large rock outcropping, a cliff, if you will, referred to as the Rock of the Gods in reference to the many shrines built on it. I've got it, there it is right there. That's what it looks like today. And by the way, Mount, this is a shameless plug. Uh, Mount Hermon's going to this and many other places in the Holy Land in 2023. Save your pennies, go. For followers of Christ, that trip would be transformational in your life. Uh, And I'm sure they will go here. Uh, It's a large outcropping, many shrines built to it, and you can still see some of the the shrines. You see the large, uh, like, uh, grotto, if you will, there to the right of it. You can see a little niche. Uh, There's a rock, uh, an outcropping, uh, a niche there, a shrine there. Uh, And around there, they would worship all the different gods. Uh, That rock outcropping to its day was called uh, the Gate of the underworld or the gate of Hades. And that'll become important a little later in our story. And it was called the gates of Hades because it was believed that a, a fountain, a stream of water came out from that large rock outcropping. There was an earthquake about 100 years ago. It shifted, the water doesn't come out of there anymore. But the people of the day believed where the water came out was where the, uh, the path of the underworld was. Uh, and so because this is a pantheistic, uh, pluralistic center of worship, idolatry, it was, it was despicable what took place there. I can't even describe to you uh, because of, it would just offend you and it offends me, the way that people worshipped uh, Pan, they worshipped Baal or Baal, they worshipped Caesar, and they would, to appease these gods, they would do terrible, terrible things, terrible things. This is the place, by the way, this is what uh, historians say it looked like in that day. There would be, to the left, in front of that rock outcropping would be uh, a shrine to Pan. There would be a shrine to Caesar. The whole city was named after him, Caesarea Philippi, and then a bunch of other worshiping areas around the rock. We are what we worship, and when you worship idols, you become like what you worship. Uh, such a dehumanizing activity took place there. It was almost the red light district of the day. So let's pick it up again in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. By the way, all good compliments Right? These are all, uh, they're, they're filtering Messiah, and we still do this through our day. The people are filtering Messiah through their lens of who they think he should be. 
Uh, and it's all storm the gates kind of people. Some say you're Elijah. You're that one that called down fire and just nailed the prophets of Baal. Some say you're that fiery John the Baptist back who took it to the Romans. Or Jeremiah, the fiery prophet who brought it. Uh, you know this, most of you, that, that in its day, Israel was in an occupied land. They were under the, the tyranny of the Roman government. And so they were longing for that political Messiah that would emancipate them. And finally, they'd have freedom. And so they're saying, this is the Messiah we want. This is the Messiah we think that, that, that people are saying they think you are. We still do this today, right? We create a Jesus of our own liking. Our neighbors do too. I don't know the last time you surveyed your neighbors or your city or your coworkers on who Christ is, but generally word on the street, he's a moral teacher. He's a good philosopher. He actually exists to enhance my life, not really practically in my life, but he's there to bless me. He would never disagree with me. Jesus is someone who would always affirm my wants, my desires. Always affirm my comfort. Never call me to sacrifice. That's what most of our neighbors think. He's like an Alexa or a Siri type. Hey, Alexa, turn on the light. Hey, Siri, turn on the music. Hey, Jesus, turn on the income. He's there when I need him, but he quietly stays in the corner and has no influence over my life. That's generally the word on the street. People generally like Jesus, the Jesus of their own making. Am I the only one living in the Bay Area around people like this? No. And by the way, you need to know I am not, uh, I love my neighbors. I love the Bay Area. This is the area that I was brought up in and that God has called me to give my life to and live out my life. So I am not down on anybody when I say this at all. But what about today, right? That's what most people think. Jesus isn't really concerned with popular opinion. He turns the question to his Christ, his own followers. And this is a question that's really important for us as Christ followers to answer. I, I get it. Like, we'll see in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that I have it in your notes. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. People are blind. My neighbors are blind. It's not that they're stupid. They're blind. They're, I have very intelligent neighbors, right? But they're just blind to the reality. I was blind. How, how do you read the Bible for nine years through the New Testament every year and not come to realize Jesus is Lord? Because I was blind. And so the reality is, Jesus says, you know, I get the world's view of me, but more important than the world's view of me, he turns to his own followers. And can I just say it? He turns to you today. Labor Day weekend, 2021. This is the question of questions, my friends. Here's why. Because for so many of my neighbors, uh, so many of people in my city, I am the only Christ they see and encounter. And I believe this wholeheartedly, and trust me, I love the church. And I believe that the people in the church, for the kingdom of God to advance, Jesus has to show up through us, ready? In unexpected places, in unexpected ways. Monday through Saturday, 
so that your life is so saturated with Jesus that you are the church at your place of employment. You are the church in your neighborhood. You are the church in your gym. Paul said it this way, we are the aroma of Christ, as if God were making his appeal through us. You smell like Jesus. What kind of aroma are we giving off? That's why it's so important that we settle as followers of Christ on the answer to this question. Jesus says this in verse 15, but what about you? In the original language, it's you personal. He was in a group, it's as if the sense that Matthew recorded as he was there was Jesus looked at his followers and said, what about you, Matthew? What about you, John? Andrew, what about you? Peter, what about you? Thaddeus, what about you? James, what about you? As if he would say to me this morning, Gary, what about you? In September of 2021, who do you say I am? How do you answer that? And how do you answer that not just in your head, but how do you answer that in your heart? If you were a tender of PCC and part of uh, the body that I shepherded, you would understand that uh, I hate condemnation. One of the best things I love about Jesus is there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Conviction is great. And so please don't beat yourself up and just go, I suck, I'm terrible. No, but live in the conviction. How is your life demonstrating your answer to this question? How is your time management demonstrating your answer to this question? How is your resource stewardship demonstrating your answer to this question? How does the way you treat your neighbor demonstrate your answer to this question of who Jesus is? How does the way you treat your enemy demonstrate your answer to this question? Friends, this is the question of questions. And for us in the Bay Area, who are living in some of the hardest soil in the United States, easily in the United States, if not the world, I realized at one point we were sending missionaries to places that had more followers of Christ per capita than Redwood City. We need to capture that scent, calling, identity. And it all comes down to this, who do you say that I am. Simon Peter answered, you're Messiah. In other words, you're the anointed one. You are the king of all kings. You remember he's saying this in front of Caesar's palace. You are the king of Caesar. You're the king of, of, of all kings. You are the one we've been waiting for, the one for 400 years we were told would be coming throughout all the Old Testament. Then there was silence. You are him. You are Messiah the son of the living God in the midst of that rock outcropping where idols are worshiped, where people who are deceived are destroying their lives and engaging in destructive behavior to dead gods. He's saying, no, you are alive. You are the living God. Who do we say, who do people say I am? You are I am. 
You are I am. In essence, because he is I am, you know what that means for me? And Tim, you kind of alluded to this through uh, COVID, and if COVID taught us anything, it's this lesson. Because Jesus is I am, I am not. I'm not all that. I'm not the person I project myself to be. I'm not the husband I need to be to my wife of 30 years also. I'm not the dad I need to be to my five daughters. I'm not the pastor you've called me to be. I'm not the neighbor you need in Redwood City to minister to his neighborhood. Jesus, I am not the person I even hoped I'd be. I don't have what it takes. I'm not the center of the universe. Life doesn't revolve around my needs, wants, and desires. And Jesus just smiles and says, that's why I'm here. That's why I am, because you're not. And life is found, friends, flourishing is found in that one confession. Because we are not, Jesus says, I am. I am. Look at his response in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed. By the way, just sit in that word. We hear that a lot in church circles. Bless you. We just sung, bless the Lord, right? Which is so good. So many times we ask God to bless us. Uh, how about us blessing God, right? I love that song. But it's the deepest level of satisfaction. The word mean bless means to have fulfillment and purpose fueled by the favor of God. So when Peter comes to this confession, Jesus says to him, that's blessed. You're blessed. Fulfillment to you. Satisfaction to you. We would say in our terms, human flourishing to you, Peter. Simon, son of Jonah. Now here, look at this. This is so important to our theology and really our missiology. This was not revealed Keyword to you, circle that word. It's the word apocalypse. Well, the whole last book of the Bible is named Revelation. It's God unveiling. God is the initiator of a revelation. That's why the number one prayer my wife and I have over our five daughters is reveal yourself to them. It's not about intellect. It's about a revelation. What happened in my, not, in my life at 18 at that Halloween party, for whatever reason, the revelation, I saw things differently that night. The Holy Spirit gave revelation. I pray that over my life. My wife and I pray that for our life. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Or maybe you've come to the place where you're satisfied enough, you have enough revelation of Jesus that you need for the rest of your life. Anyone want to testify about that? You have enough revelation of Jesus? No, we should be praying this prayer. Reveal yourself. This was not revealed to you. I told you about 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's true. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers as followers of Christ, our prayer, our vaccine against spiritual blindness, if you will, is to pray for spiritual revelation, for the Holy Spirit to come through. So in our neighborhood, I told the Lord, I don't know if I have enough faith 
for the whole Bay Area to come to Christ, but Lord, I live on Grand Street. There's 20 houses. Take it off your list. I will cover these houses in prayer. I do have enough faith for my street, and I have a strategy I call prayer, care, share. Hang in there. And as I get to know my neighbors, I pray for them as I get to know their needs. And you know what I pray? Reveal yourself. Reveal yourself. I look for needs, and, we, we, and I'm not the poster child of this, but we care for them. It puts the onus of evangelism on the shoulders of God. It's, it's, like, a, it's like, a, um, like a treasure hunt on the weekly in our neighborhood. I'm like, God, where are you at work today? Whose neighbor are you working in? Share when the chance comes. Share my story of what God's done in my life. And don't give up. So reveal. This has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Even nine years of reading the New Testament won't bring you to Christ unless the Father reveals himself. Now, here we go. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name. Uh, names in that day meant your character. When we praise the name of God, especially in the Old Testament, uh, tons of names of God, uh, we are praising the character of God. Most of you know this. Jesus changed his name. Uh, Peter means rock. There was a large rock outcropping there that he's saying this in front of uh, that isn't lost on Peter or the disciples. Um, he's going to say, on this rock, I will build my church, uh, derivative of that name. So this is just intentional of Jesus. This, my friends, is part of why Jesus took his followers on a retreat to Las Vegas. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my, and here it comes, first time it shows up in the New Testament, something so important to us, so under attack, so neglected this day, especially after COVID. I will build my church. I will build my called out community. In other words, he's saying, my friends, in the face of people destroying themselves in the worship of hedonism and, and uh, just, just filling their life with destructive things that Caesarea Philippi was, Jesus took them up there to say, I brought you here to show you the antidote to this, to all this pain, all this destruction, my church. My church, built on the confession, Jesus is Lord. That human flourishing doesn't come from a human-centered life. It comes from a God-centered life. Somehow, in 2,000 years, and I know it's not your church. It certainly isn't Venture Church. But uh, church has turned from that to making it all about us. Even the question, how is church today? Did you like the worship today? Did you like this? We've just turned it inward. This is not what Jesus designed for his body. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In that day, gates protected a city. And so he's saying it in front of the cultural gate of Hades, that large uh, grotto. But he's also intended to say the church is not to be on the defensive as if, all of hell's unleashing their fury, and they are. But they won't overcome it. No, no, no. Gates protected. The church is to be on the offensive. The church is to be so expansive 
this, this, this work of Jesus in us is to be so expansive. You can't keep it in. It's not like, I, oh, I have to go serve my city. No, you want to because Jesus has done something so real in you that you want others to know and, and all of hell will try to oppose you, but they won't overcome you. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I think somehow, and I, I'm not trying to shoot arrows, but I think somehow for me, I know for me, I, I can be lured into thinking, I have to sequester myself in the big bad world. And it's, it's brutal out there. And oh God, help me. And, and let me have my own Christian enclave. And Jesus just goes, who do you think I am? You don't think I'm more powerful than that? You don't think I can use you, Sac State boy, to go into that and fill you with my spirit? My calling, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 1, God has called the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You don't think I'm more powerful than that? It's never been about you. Can I just say that to you? If I could go one-on-one, it's never been about you. It's about Jesus for all eternity. Filling your life so fully that at work, people hear about you being a follower of Christ and go, wait, 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 wait. You follow Jesus? I never thought that would be the case. And in comes the question, can you tell me more? Where does Jesus want to expand the kingdom through you? Who are the people that you love? The places you're an insider at? I used to joke with friends of ours at our church, Ian and I's church, and they got this, and one of them uh, was a plumber, and he would come to me and go, you know, I, I pray over every house before I enter it, and I say, God, I'm here to fix pipes, but if you have a different agenda, call the audible, and, I'll, I'll, and the, the divine appointments that took place for this plumber, and then he would rid me and say, Jeej, I get to go places you never could go. I get to go into houses with the gospel, and if you showed up, they would shut the door in your face. But God uses a disciple of Jesus disguised as a plumber to go in. See, when you get this, Judy was a, um, a meth addict, and I saw Judy uh, every week at a donut shop uh, a few years back, and she would um, she would get donuts with her son, and she was strung out, and and I didn't see her with the eyes of Jesus. I just saw her as a meth addict, and frankly, I judged her. But someone else saw her with the eyes of Jesus, and uh, you know, over a matter of months, she showed up at our church and told me her story. She'd given her life to Christ, and was in a recovery program, and God was doing a mighty work in Judy, and. The only job she could get was to be a checker at uh, Petco. And so she, because she, she loved animals, she still does, and she, um, she caught wind of this. I'm not a checker at Petco, I'm a disciple of Jesus, disguised as a checker at Petco. And so she would pray for every person that came through her line. And one Sunday she came to me, she's like, you will not believe what happened. 
And she would always tell me about the adventures at Petco. It's her mission field. And someone was coming through and, and she was having a hard day and she looked harried and Judy says, are you okay? She says, I'm having a tough day. And Judy just said, you know, I, I pray for everyone that comes through. I'm gonna pray for you. And the woman said, thank you. And then checked out and then went to her car and, and she came back and said, can I talk to you? And Judy said, I'm on a break in about 20 minutes. And one thing led to another, which led to a gospel transference from Judy to this woman. All because of that one line, can I pray for you? You just never know. We're in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. The gospel shows up. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock, okay, the confession of Peter, you are Lord, the church is built, right? That's the, the traditional historical understanding from our tribe, most of our tribe, that the church will be built, and it has been for 2,000 years. It will prevail on that confession. But I believe Jesus is nuanced. I believe Jesus intentionally went to Caesarea Philippi, which had a large rock outcropping and destructive behavior in the, in the name of worship was going on. Jesus, in front of that, said, on, you know, certainly on this confession, but it wouldn't be lost in them, rock. Also, in places like this, in places where people are destroying themselves, in places where hedonism reigns, in places where it's all about you, whatever gives you pleasure, my church is gonna advance. This is where the church, my friends, needs to be, almost in a confrontational way, uh, the holy, eternal creator God. Jesus is pointing to the first century Las Vegas and say, humbly, graciously, with authority, not power. Oh, Christians, please, we don't need to look to human power, political power. We have authority in love, in humility. The gospel will advance, my church will advance, and that will be the antidote to the destruction in places like this. J.I. Packer wrote an amazing book, a classic book called Knowing God. And in that book, he describes four characteristics of people who truly, truly know God. First, they have great energy for God. He said people who truly know God have great energy for God. Secondly, they have great thoughts of God. When the thoughts of the world come on, they think greater because we have scripture. Thirdly, they show great boldness for God. And fourthly, they have great contentment in God. That's why this question is so important for followers of Christ. When we truly know God, do you think our culture needs followers of Christ who in humility have great energy, think great thoughts, uh, for, uh, go forward and are bold with great boldness, bold in love, bold in humility, bold in service, who do things that make people shake their heads and go, why are you doing this? and who have great contentment in God, I'm telling you, that people like that who really answer this question and it goes from their head to their heart, we outlive our generation. That was the whole point. So that Peter would later write in 1 Peter, be ready to have an answer when people ask you for the hope that's in you. Why are you outliving me? Why is it you seem to have a deeper contentment. Why aren't you freaking out during COVID? 
And when that question comes, we're ready. Who do you think Jesus is? Now do you see why Jesus took his men on a retreat to Las Vegas? Now do you see why he went 25 miles north? The very next thing Matthew writes, look at verse 21. From that time on, Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus began, he hadn't said this yet before in his discipleship training, he began to explain to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. At that point, he displays another thing they hadn't heard. I'm going to the cross. I'm not the Messiah most people think I should be. I am the suffering Messiah, but my death will fuel you with a life to be the church that advances so much that all of hell will unleash their fury, but the gates of hell will not overcome it. Friends, we need to renew our mind again and again and again with this very question. It wasn't asked of the masses. It was asked of his followers. Who do you say Jesus is? And I know in COVID, I've had to come back to this question again and again and again. And as a parent of five daughters, again and again and again. And as a husband uh, to one wife over 30 years, again and again and again. Jesus, you're greater. Jesus, you can, you can make up for where I am not. Jesus, you can be through me the father these daughters need. Jesus, this is what they're saying, but this is who you are. And again and again and again. And resting in that, what he says in this word as a greater reality than what comes over the newswire or what's on my homepage or what I see before me. Believing in that truth more than what's confronting me. I'll close with Dallas Willard in his book, Spirit of the Disciplines. He said, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats. By the way, he wrote this about 20 years ago. I think it's more relevant today. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes. This is a time for women and men to be heroic in spiritual character and in power. The greatest danger of the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. My brothers and sisters, I offer you a God who can't be defined by any human term. I offer you a God who is greater than any, anything opposing you. I offer you a God who has said to us, your life, my life is a mist. It is a mist. I offer you a God that is ushering in a brand new kingdom. It's on its way, and it showed up ahead of time, and we get to live it out so that others can see and taste that God is good. We are the Christ that most people look at, and it's important we understand and live in this question and ask God for a new, fresh revelation. Who are you, Jesus? Would you be that in me? Amen? Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thanks for this first question. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough. You don't ask it with a pointing finger. You don't ask it saying, don't you know by now? 
We've sung of your compassion and your mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love. Would you this weekend reveal anew, again, a fresh aspect of your character? You know what we all need. You brought us here for a reason. Yeah, we think we came here uh, for our purposes. We know you have a purpose too, and we surrender to your purpose. Whether it be a, a walk on a trail near the redwoods by the creek or playing or sitting and pondering or looking at the stars at night or digging into your word as we will, would you reveal in a fresh new way who you are? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. We pray it in your name. And all God's people said,